Authorized is on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash authorized pod if you want to support us. For $3 a month, you can help us buy these books. For $6 a month, we'll give you a shout-out on the podcast. And for even more money, you can demand that we read and discuss a certain novelization. Pretty cool. If we get enough listeners, we will start putting out bonus episodes, so tell your friends. Authorized.com. It's not authorized.com. What? Patreon.com slash authorized pod. Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we vengefully discuss the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are an opportunity for a film's director to gleefully expand on the reality of a streamlined picture that suggests quiet character moments, but rarely includes them. A movie might show us that Rocky Balboa's brother-in-law, Pauly, comes to Russia with him, but a novelization will make sure we know that he was heartbroken to leave his robot life partner, and also found Russia very cold. These books take impressionist glimpses of Rocky training, and show how he granularly worked and evolved, all the while knowing that the fate of America's tentative peace with Russia rests upon his yoked shoulders. Amidst political calamity, these texts additionally humanize a film's villain, digging beneath his icy exterior to probe his loves, fears, and allegiances. Novelizations also recognize that Pauly didn't have much of a subplot in the film, and instead of giving him a story, they provide a myriad of vignettes in which he longs for and indulges his countless vices. Novelizations excel in many modes at once. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Andrew Marco. And I'm Hannah Blackman. <clears throat> Excuse me. Smoky voice, Hannah Blackman. <laughs> great, great start. <sighs> oh, that's me, baby. Always off to a great start. And it can only get better from here. Rocky Four is a 1985 sports drama film directed by Sylvester Stallone, the king. It follows Rocky Balboa, the world heavyweight champion who faces a new throne gauntlet, this time belonging to unknown Russian Adonis Ivan Drago. When Rocky expresses no interest in felling this new opponent, his foe-turned-mentor-turned-best-friend-in-the-world, Apollo Creed, hungrily leaps at the chance. Beyond his pride and unable to release the past, Apollo ignores every warning sign and submits himself to the fatal victory of Drago, leaving both kin and kith grieving his untimely passing. This is so overwritten, Andrew. Yeah, Andrew, do, <laughs> I love do you know that Adonis is Apollo Creed's son in the Creed movies? When you chose that word? Uh, I didn't remember <laughs> it. I have seen them. <laughs> well, I can't wait to get into the whole deal. Anyway. It's his son with Drago, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> when did that happen in the book? Oh. It's so crazy how those Creed movies are like, Creed 1, it's Rocky. Creed 2, it's Rocky 4. Like, they just jump Who so Who knows far. what Creed 3 will be? Maybe it'll be Creed oh. 1 again. It'll be nothing. It'll be nothing. They'll never make it. 
Anyway, crushed by his guilt and anger, Rocky must venture to a Leningrad boxing ring to face his friend's killer. But is vengeance in the cards, or will Drago be an unstoppable tool that endlessly chips away American morale by publicly... (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm so sorry. This is what this movie is about. I know it sounds ridiculous. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, and it's good. I just... Dan, I never read these in advance, and they always make me laugh, and it's always embarrassing, and it's always a waste of everyone's time. So I, f- I think it's charming. I mean, honestly, I, en- I enjoy all these little, like, kind of sub <laughs> Just sub- wait till the bonus right episode here. where it's just Hannah struggling to read things. <laughs> Hannah, I wrote 10 intros. Uh, <laughs> Dan, we're really banking on it being charming, because in 65 episodes, we have not changed it. I can't, so. and I can't change myself. I'm tickled. The deepest shade of shrimp at everything that Andrew writes. And I just can't stop it. Whew, All right, let's okay. take that sentence again. I'm going to do a, it. a real thing of beauty. I know it is. And I want everyone to... Now that I know what it <laughs> says, I think I can do it. So, Or will Drago be an unstoppable tool that endlessly chips away at American morale by publicly executing the nation's most beloved athletes? <laughs> <laughs> See? It's funny. It is. <laughs> the novelization of Rocky IV was written by the man himself, Sylvester Stallone, based on his own screenplay. It was published by Ballantine Books in 1985. Wait, I'm sorry. I got to interrupt you, Andrew. I didn't look uh-huh. at the front cover because I just got to read these books fast. I did not know Sylvester Stallone wrote this book. He wrote all of the novelizations. Did they? How many of them did they do? At least four. Mm. I'm pretty sure there's a five. There's got to be a five. It, it, well... Mm-hmm. We'll talk about Rocky Five, I guess. We'll talk about probably the whole series. But no, I don't have a I don't have a bio on Sylvester Stallone for the same reason I didn't do one on Tarantino. It seemed a little silly. <laughs> but the the thing I was going to say about Rocky Five is that uh, it occurred to me watching Four that like Four is a movie about how uh, Rocky, who usually fights in this very um, endorsed way. You know, he's the champ and people challenge him, does something that's not endorsed, right? Like he goes over to Russia and fights this guy. Uh, and then five, which is terrible, is like this exaggerated version of that where it's like Rocky's mad at a guy and he fights him in an alley. This is Rocky now. I tell you, I fully forgot that Rocky five existed. And I was like, Rocky Balboa, a meaningful, serious. That's a that's the next Rocky movie. It's not. Mm. We should introduce our guest so that he feels comfortable speaking. Our guest today, one of the hosts of the podcast Project Exploitation, a show in which they dive into the relevance and also the resonance of B movies from the 1950s until the year 2000 and no further. Dan Jeremy Brooks, how are you doing today? I'm and, doing uh, excellent. And how did uh, you feel revisiting Rocky Four? I, uh, I, I, well, I mean, as you know, I, I had, uh, recommended it to you. I think it was, I think it was within maybe five or 10 minutes of us meeting each other. Um, I said, <laughs> yeah, wasn't it? Cause you were like, you were like, oh, I'm doing this show, this podcast about novelizations. I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. I was like, so have you considered Rocky four? I happen to be the proud owner of it. So <clears throat> that's kind of how it went. And I, I, I did, I have owned it for many years, but I had not actually read it. And this forced me to finally do that. The most social uh, night of authorized networking I've ever done, where <laughs> I showed up to see this movie that my friend's dad was in. And uh, Julio, the director, has now been unauthorized. And also you. 
Uh, okay, Dan. In the landscape of the Rocky films, how do you feel about Rocky IV, uh, sort of before we get into the book? Like, what is this movie to you? Uh, honestly, to me, it's, it's in some ways the ultimate example of... Um, it's the crest of the Cold War paranoia wave in the 80s. Um, uh, I... I was uh, born in 1977, uh, and I went to Catholic school. So basically, I went to school in the 60s, uh, in a sense, because <laughs> we were using textbooks from that time period. And uh, anyway, uh, I would say we were instilled with a very um, unhealthy fear of of nuclear war, and I, there was a there was a a lot of that on the periphery of our of our brains. I, I think. In the 70s, you know, Nixon kind of created this detente with Brezhnev. And then when Reagan came back in, he started saber rattling in a pretty um, obnoxious and irresponsible way. And so pretty soon we started talking about it. And of course, there was a, a plethora of films at the time, and there were some really good ones. Uh, the Day After and Testament both came out the same year. Those are fantastic, very realistic movies about um, the Cold War. And, and and this is not one of those realistic movies. Um, this, is, uh, <laughs> this is very much uh, hyperbole. Everything is dialed up to 10 or perhaps 11. And in some ways, I think it's the ultimate Rocky movie. Um, and in other ways, I think it's probably the most overwrought of them, even counting five, actually. But there's something mm-hmm. that's just so crackerjack about the symbology uh, in it. And, I mean, down to the, that opening shot with the, the two gloves. You know, you got the, uh, the, the two flags. I mean, hitting each other, there's an explosion. It's, it's like many of us, we look back on movies from our childhood, and we remember them in a kind of exaggerated way. We're like, oh. And then when you go back to revisit them, you're like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a little more nuanced than I thought. This is not like that. This movie is every bit <laughs> as hyperbolic and exaggerated as I remembered, maybe even more so. And that said, I still get swept up in it. I really do. I really like the idea of the citizens of Leningrad kind of starting to root for Rocky because he's 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 approachable. He's a damned appealing guy, you know, and much more than I can say for Drago, who in the novelization, I think we, we find more sympathy for, of course, but I guess we'll get into that later. So I think that's probably what the movie represents. I mean, there was a there was a whole bunch of these films, um, but I think this was real the crest of the wave. I mean, you had like you know you had Red Dawn, uh, oh god, there's there's several others, and there were a lot of you know ridiculous films about the um, Im, you know supposed imperviousness of the Soviets, um, but this one, I don't know. I think it in some ways is the ultimate quintessential mid-80s Cold War uh, action flick. That turn uh, at the end of the movie where the, all of the Russian fans start cheering for Rocky is is well executed, and they make it believable because the, 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 the crest of the, of the drama ha- has become so, so sort of like orchestral in magnitude that they're able to sell that moment. But mm-hmm. in retrospect, it really feels like they have to have that because otherwise you need 15 more minutes where they get Rocky out of Russia alive. <laughs> right, right. Seriously. They, yeah, it would be like there would be a, a, a black limo waiting by the door and he just dives into the back and says, drive, drive, drive. And then they drive him to a, a chartered flight out of there. Yeah. 
totally, totally. It just feels like, you know, it, he's he, these men are, I think, in some danger, be it from the governments or be it from, like, the feral fans. I mean, I think Drago probably is legitimately in danger between the Creed fight and the second Rocky fight when he's still in America. Like, True. that makes total sense to me. And I can imagine that happening in, like, a, an early Rocky four you know, story layout where they're like, and then does he escape? And they're like, no, I think the Russians love him. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little, little deus ex machina at the end. They're like, what if, and hear me out, the Russians love him. And, but it's interesting because <laughs> Stallone is very, he has a very charming little thing in the the novel. I think it's in the last chapter at the beginning where he's describing the people of Londongrad and he's describing how scrappy and indomitable these folks are and it's actually fairly historically accurate and he does it in a pretty quick way so it, it does seem like Stallone at least did his research or I mean it may have been tagged on but he at least attempted to, to flesh it out a little uh, at least what I think we must acknowledge is that in the movie they're not in Leningrad <clears throat> they're in Moscow yeah which uh, I love in the book that they make a point to say, like, the citizenry of Leningrad already kind of hates Russia and is kind of primed. Something you've all sort of touched on a little bit in this so far, though, is that I think, I mean, Stallone, because his personality is so much associated with the character of Rocky Balboa, who is a simpler man, I think it's forgotten that he is sort of like has interesting ideas and like kind of takes on interiority like did anyone watch the document the 90 any part of the 90 minute documentary of him talking about his director's cut that came out last year no i heard about a director's cut but i haven't seen the director's cut nor if i watched the documentary about it it's it's interesting it's basically just him in an editing bay watching clips it's very informal but he's just talking about things that he felt pressured by at the time by the studios by expectations or audience to do that now that he's an old, Stallone, now that he's an older filmmaker would just like, he's like, I'm doing this differently because I want to focus more on Drago's emotion here, not just as this Soviet beast, but like, what's the character? And luckily he has all this alternate footage and unused takes that he could pull in a lot of which actually get referenced in this book. Something at the very end, we talked about that fight where the Russians turn to his side, the Soviet premier and his buddies leave. Which is in the director's cut, but in the theatrical cut of the movie, the Gorbachev stand-in claps, and it's like a real like USA rah rah. The West has won moment. Not I in the book. When the man stands up as if possessed <laughs> and starts clapping. I wish one of us had watched the director's cut. I think that would have oh, been I've helpful. Seen it. Oh, okay. Never mind then. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad <laughs> because. Reading, like, various people's letterbox reviews, which I know are not real criticism or whatever, but it does seem like this book is much closer to the director's cut in multiple ways. That it spends more time with Apollo, has more interest in the training and the buildup, um, that what Stallone was able to do in 1985 with his novelization was say, like, here's what I wanted to do. And some of the stuff that he was forced to include is still there, like the robot. Which is not in the director's um, cut. Right, because he notoriously hated it. Or it's also reported that he may not have wanted to pay the rights to the guy who created the robot. <laughs> oh. 
That's what I. That's what I heard. That's what I heard. I love Andrew, that because I heard that he provided the voice, and so the royalties, the mechanical licensing for the voice was steeper than Stallone wanted to pay, because I believe the robot was very much his idea at the beginning. Uh, it had to do with uh, he had a son who had um, developmental disabilities, and they were using some sort of educational robot. I I, I assume it wasn't quite as like sentient or semi-sentient as this one, but that was kind of where that came from. So, yeah, I think it's a little disingenuous of Sylvester Stallone to later on go, no, I'm getting rid of the robot. No more robot. And I'm like, you put it in there in the first place, dude. You're not fooling anyone. So, anyway. Is it crazy to suggest that the thing that this needs is like robot wise is more robot. Yeah. The thing that's weird about it is that the robot just friggin' disappears. I was about to film. say that. Everyone makes a big stink about how this movie is like stupid and cheesy because of the fucking robot. But the robot's in the first half hour. And then once it's over, like once they're in Vegas, once they're in Russia, they cut to the robot like once. It's behind Rocky Jr. while it's he's part watching. of the family. It's as much a part of the family as like if they had a dog. Like it's it's not intrusive. I, I I guess we're we're gonna we're talking about the elephant in the room, which is of course the bizarre and inexplicable appearance of of the robot. Um, first of all, I feel like I don't know if you guys feel this, but it feels like that whole first sequence, especially in the novel, is like designed to like punish Polly for like I don't know being shiftless or something. Like they they've got the camera in his face and they're like forcing him to like hide and temper his disappointment. It was. It, it struck me as weirdly vindictive. Uh, which I, I mean, mean Paulie looks unwell in the first twenty minutes of the movie. He looks like he doesn't know where he is. I mean, to be yes. fair, because if we remember the first Rocky movie is like a drama that has some sports in it. Paulie sucks. <laughs> yeah, like Paulie, like he's a shitty guy. He should have been left behind in one of his movies. It's bizarre. He is still in it by Rocky Balboa and thankfully he is euthanized between films before Creed happens. <laughs> <laughs> but like why is he the best friend? He's like your wife. He's not. Shitty- He's the brother-in-law. And you can tell what I I really want to go to bat so hard for Stallone as like an actor and a guy who like understands what this movie needs and that's reflected in his novelization but especially as a performer you can tell that Rocky's like I don't like Polly he's so yes. annoying he's ruining my life he's my wife's brother and so <laughs> he lives with us by 6 even though in 5 which no one acknowledges but he ruins Stallone's life like he mm-hmm. bankrupts the family i'm pretty sure he like has all these bad deals going down. Oh, right. But in Rocky Six, they're best buddies. In Balboa, they're best I think buddies. It is, well, once your wife dies, I think then you, you abandon the to... brother-in-law. No, no, you cling to what's left of her, and that's <laughs> you Polly, have a really successful son with that I mean, wife. Yeah. Well, the thing I found wild is like it, it, there's a movie, uh, be it two or three where there's a conflict between Rocky and Pauly that's essentially like, I don't like that you're a big, rich, big that's shot. That's three, I not. think, when he's like, destroys yeah, a, like three. a pinball machine at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, and it just feels like, I, that's an understandable arc for Pauly to go through. It's an under, it, it's unreasonable, too. Like, it makes sense that Rocky would be mad about it. Everything about that plot is good. And then in four, it feels like, Stallone's like intentionally needling him <laughs> yes. about things he's really voiced a lot of aggrievement about. He's like, hey, you know how you wanted a sports car? I got you a fucking robot made. 
Right. You know, you couldn't trust him with a sports car anyway, though, because he smashes up Rocky's car like the first chance he gets because he's like a loser. He's a fucking loser. And he's half in the bag the entire time he is on screen. And like they bring him to Russia. He's not even like moral support. He's a downer. He's unhelpful. He's actively unhelpful. (laughs) But, you know, I think a lot of it, I might be wrong, but I think uh, it's Burt Young, right? Is the actor who plays Paulie. Yeah. I think he instills in the guy so much more dignity than the character really deserves. (laughs) He's because he he's a nuanced actor. I've seen him in other things and he's I mean there's even moments in, especially in the first two Rocky films where there's kind of little things where he he I don't know it's there's intriguing little grace notes there. And in the novelization man you do not sense that at all. You feel like Stallone <laughs> is just like hammering him <laughs> while he's already down, you know. I mean yeah, uh, it's audience expectation though. I think they cuz it's interesting. Again, the first movie he got this great cast that are all together except for Burgess Meredith through this fourth one. Who are all really good actors who, even as the movies get absurd, you still have Talia Shire and Carl Weathers giving these really good performances. And I think, honestly, he's just playing into the audience expectations of, wow, Polly really sucks. Like, I can really, because, I mean, we will, we can talk about it more. This movie, this book is so horny. One of the weird things about this book is that it it extends empathy to every single character. It's like... Let's get a little uh, Rocky interiority, obviously. Let's get, like, a lot of Adrian's view of, like, what Creed is doing. Something, like, we don't necessarily get a ton of in the movie. Mm -hmm. And then, like, for some reason... I mean, we even get Drago. Like, Drago loves his wife so damn much that, that for some reason, Stallone's conception of the Pauly character is shallow. And I'm not saying it as a dig, because whatever he's doing is incredibly intentional. But he is, like... This is a comic relief character. Like, every time... I mean, my complaint... I wrote about this on Letterboxd, Andrew. I was like, you know, I Paulie doesn't have a plot in this movie, even though he's in Russia. What's up with that? And you were like, he has the robot, which is true. But once he gets to Russia, he's there and nothing happens. I didn't just say and, he had the robot. I said he's fucking a robot. <laughs> he's well, <sure>. fucking <laughs> the robot. I, I want to I, I wanna address this. I think that, like... The arc, the tiny, I agree that Polly has like, oh, nothing going on. But no, he does have this added, little none arc. None of it is of substance. He does have this little bit, which is in the movie too, but not presented quite as much, where he, you know, says basically like, if I could be anybody, I'd want to <clears throat> be you. Yeah. Which yeah. is a pretty big thing to say to a human man. Mm-hmm. And in the book, that hits with like some weight and he- seriousness. That here's an unserious character who Stallone gives this moment of like real pathos to say like I admire you. What you're doing here is admirable mm. and amazing, and I could never do it. And you're great. And I know this about myself that I'm a piece of shit, and you're an American <laughs> hero. And that moment in the movie is played like totally differently. It feels to me where Rocky's like great fuck you. Like, not engaged with that moment at all. Where the book really, it gives Polly something, which is a precursor to the Russian public being like, we also admire you. You're a great hero. Your work ethic. It's like, mm-hmm. eases us into that. If Polly, if Polly can change, right? If you can change and I can change, everybody <laughs> can change. Um, which feels insane when he says it in the movie. Mm. But if Polly can change enough to say what you're doing is admirable and I admire you, even though I have a series of issues about how our lives have gone. 
And if Rocky can change to say, like, you're a piece of shit, but I thank you for that sentiment. That's very nice. Then the Russian people can change. Then the American people can change. And we can find peace and harmony once again. Like, I think that's I think that's a terrific point. I really do. (laughs) Here's my favorite (laughs) Pauly passage. This is not a diss. I think this is legitimately good. Uh, There were more fans waiting outside the gate when they arrived home. Mm. It was the same. Flags, cheering, the usual platitudes. Rocky was beginning to understand how wars got started. And I thought I had a lot of pressure, Pauly said. Pauly would have been hard... (laughs) Sorry. Pauly would have been hard put to specify what that pressure was but he bore it gracefully. <laughs> Funny. I loved that too, per- particularly a uh, paragraph right before it where it says, suddenly Rocky was surrounded by the smiling old men. He couldn't help but wonder how accurate their oh, memories the of war were. I thought that was like incredibly <laughs> insightful for a movie. Well, uh, uh, insightful for a novelization of a movie that's incredibly jingoistic. I, anyway, that's not related to Paul. I could talk for ages about all the people that approach Rocky and tell him he's God of America <laughs> before he leaves for Russia. Mm. I think one of the w- one of the stupidest things in the book, although it did make me laugh, and I like this book a lot. Hannah, yeah. you, I basically told you to stop talking to me about it because I wanted to do it here. Mm-hmm. You love the book. I did really like it, but I like Rocky. Hands you down, do? I love, I love, no, I did like the book. Yes. Oh. I'm pro oh, okay. book, but I'm primed to be pro book because I'm unbelievably pro Rocky. I think every Rocky movie is good. I, I like agree. all of them. They make me cry. I'm deeply moved by that bum from the streets. Um, to the point where, like, I think Rocky Four is a masterpiece. I think Sly Stallone is the best director of montages who has ever lived. Um, and uh, some I Russians love would movie. like to have a word with you about your yeah, yeah, yeah. They're good. Whatever yeah. is is Sergei is Eisenstein the montage is work <laughs> is the montage work in Rocky Four an homage to classic Russian filmmaking? Perhaps is Stallone smart enough to do that? Yes. Um, no, I just, I love Rocky. I love his friends. I love his family. I'm like, so every time in the movie when Talia Shire has the moment where she's like, Rocky, you can't do it. You'll die. I like pump my fists in the air. Like, I was going to like this unless it was garbage. And of course it's not garbage because like Stallone knows what he's doing and he's good at it. And it's well written and I really dig it. It's, so yeah, I fucking love it's it. It's funny. I think back on all those Talia Shire scenes, I'm like, wow, they're really not giving her a lot to do. Like she's a Coppola for God's sakes. And then I'm like, oh, this is like her Marvel contract. Where she's like, I show up, I make a lot of money from these movies. I'm sure she got paid well for all of these Rocky movies. She does a lot of heavy emoting and has like one big scene where she fights with her husband. And it's good every time. These movies put Jason Schwartzman through, you know, summer camp or whatever he was doing. And we're grateful for that. <laughs> I mean, the Rocky movies lose something without Adrian. And it's bizarre because like, she's that's... still alive. Like, Burt Young is no longer with us. I get getting rid of Polly. I get dramatically. But, like, couldn't have had any ghost scenes with her. There are ghosts in this franchise. We have established ghosts exist because Mickey comes back in Rocky V as a ghost. Oh, yeah. So, like, why can't we have Talia Shire or, like, a flashback scene? I. It's crazy to me that they don't think... Uh, They've never like, I mean, I think again, Stallone makes smart choices. He takes, he's like, yeah, I could bring her back or I couldn't. And I could, what does that present dramatically a challenge for me? And I think he, he likes those challenges. Yeah. I mean, I'm not knocking the choice. I just think like 
One of the most potent moments is when they're in Russia and Adrian shows up and says, like, I couldn't stay away. I love you too much. And it's this, like, powerful, emotional reminder that he's not a machine. He's a human being. And that's his real strength. Right. Like, ah, I love her and I miss her. And the two of them together are so cute because she's so tiny. Well, could I say something actually about the machine man thing? Thank you for mentioning that. Because uh, I Pleasure. think that's one of like the big, I mean, it's it's in the film, but it's really underlined in the novelization. And that's why at first glance, ugh, at first glance, I thought the robot was like pretty grossly incongruous <laughs> to, the, to the story. I'm like, like, I have a friend who the first time he saw Rocky Four, he literally fell off the sofa when the rush, when the robot came in and laughed and laughed. And he still can't not giggle whenever we bring it up. I mean, to him, he's like, it doesn't make, why is it even here? It makes no sense. And I'm like, it was a simpler time, Toussaint. The 80s were a simpler, simpler time. No, anyway, uh, but I think, honestly, the way you see how, like, in the in the book, uh, the robot comes into the dining room and Apollo's like really freaked out, which is rightly so. He's like, uh? and the same thing with like the FBI guys. They they they're they're like there's a description in both cases where they're they're both descri- visibly disturbed by this weird sudden arrival of this robot. I think it ties into Apollo's dread of being replaced by machines. Um, you know, he's a, there's a line in the book where he says, these new cars are all modern technology. Bust down on the road and you're trying to fix a computer, not a car. And Apollo also repeatedly refers to the Soviet Union's uh, sort of uh, charm offensive as a propaganda machine. And, you know, his wife, uh, Cora, predicts that a newer generation of boxers will be, quote, contract players with calculating machines and tax shelters for hearts which is actually borne out just a couple of pages later when they have that extended description of Drago's training room in the routine. Um, this is a little, I'll just do a little bit of the quote here. It's a cross between a laboratory and a factory. Machines of all sides line the walls. Most of them feature digital readouts or oscilloscope screens with wavering lines. Attached to Drago's back, underneath a tank top were a pair of electrodes. It made Drago look more like a robot than ever. This could well be the prototype high-tech training room of the future. This is the reporters saying this. If that were true, they thought it would only be a matter of time before boxers themselves were eliminated. And so it feels like there's this whole, like, machines and robots become shorthand for bad as the book goes on. I mean, there's even, like, like even the G-men are like, okay, listen, we've, 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 the, the computers have told us. We've crunched the numbers. There's no way you can win, which... I, to me, I, I don't know. Have you guys, um, do you guys follow that show, Barry, that's on? It's, it's just, it's thirsty. It, it's, I mean, you don't need to know anything about it to, for me to tell you this one thing. But in the third season, the most recent season, there's this brilliant scene where this, like, really, like, super vapid TV exec is explaining why they've canceled the show. And she's like, see, nobody knows anything except the algorithm. <laughs> it's like, oh, I think I may have seen that clip. It's yeah. incredible. And it, that's basically what I feel like keeps happening. Like the Rocky talks about, he's trying to uh, connect with his, quote, you know, his chaperones, but he says it was like trying to stare down Paulie's robot. And then the, the climax Drago is described on page uh, 146 as if, a, as if a flurry of computerized frenzy had been unleashed. And so by contrast, you have Rocky, who is depicted as like an alternate 
like an alternative to cold or technology. I mean, it's not like he's exactly training as nature intended, but he's at least somewhat in harmony with the natural world. So there's this kind of like, again, that holistic good, technology bad dichotomy. Uh, I mean, there's even one, I mean, there's one line that really makes it explicit where it says, Rocky seemed to be drawing his strength from the land while Drago was being directed further into scientific technology. <laughs> and, and then at the end, when, when Drago released like running scared, he says, oh, he fights like an animal, you know? And so there's this constant like organic world, natural world versus right. technology. And I think the robot in some weird way, whether Stallone meant it consciously or not, is sort of that looming threat but it's also made kind of fun and cuddly you know maybe maybe to make it a little less scary you know robots are only acceptable if they're fun and cuddly in True. my opinion i'm Agreed. a notorious robot hater i don't trust them whatever i will always choose human beings over robots in all fiction all the time except when it's a robot like an r2d2 or a bb8 right or that little guy in rise of skywalker who's like a cone i think on his name wheel. is io <laughs> So oh, fucking cute. So I would cute. die for that robot. I would throw anybody <laughs> in a compactor for that tiny robot because he's cute and cuddly. He and is. there's like a huge difference between a robot that's like a person, which I don't like and don't trust and find very So you don't like C-3PO. And a robot that's a pet. I don't like him as much as R2-D2, you know what I mean? I get that. Mm. And I think that like there was a point where Polly, and I wish I could quote it, but I have the PDF on my little Kindle and it's hard to search. Um, but I feel like there's a part early where Polly's like, ah, oh, don't worry about the robot. It's like a pet. And then it becomes like a person and that's horrifying and weird. But there is yes. like a shift in his relationship to the robot. There's that scene in the book where he's like, uh, you know, go away to the robot. And then the robot is like standing outside his bedroom door and won't go away. And he just gets up and opens the door and he's like, come on, just you can be quiet. Just hang out like a normal <laughs> relationship. You won't you don't talk. And then maybe we have sex a little bit. I mean, there's a Polly. God knows what he's doing to that robot, because there's also a part after Adrian is like giving Rocky a hard time where he's like, you should schedule a time to smack her around. That'll solve your relationship. That was crazy. Which yeah. is about his crazy. sister. That was crazy. Yeah, his sister. And Rocky, who is the gentlest of giants, would loves her more, could not, would never ever hit her ever in the world. Yeah. Though, like, uh, like I mean, it is in canon with the universe. Suggest. Again, Rocky 1 is a drama. I am sure Polly has hit Adrian before. Yeah, yeah. Based yeah, on his sure. behaviors in the first Rocky movie. I don't yeah. remember the sequels as well. So, like. He's smacking that robot around. Yeah, he is crazy. not. It's, it's, it's all so very, very strange. But this is Polly, a man who sits in a conversation with a two championship boxers, his sister, his nephew, and reads a Playboy. <laughs> I mean, there's also there's also some point, like, and I feel like this is more in the movie. The robot is introduced, and it has like a robot, essentially masculine voice. Later, it shows up after they have whatever happens between Polly and the robot has begun happening. And it has a, f a very feminine voice and is talking like a beaten woman where the robot shows up and is like, yes, darling, of course, darling, whatever you need, my sweet boy. Mm. And it's like, I don't know what he's doing to that robot, but he has broken its spirit. He's <laughs> yeah. like, heard it. Just like the Russians it. have broken Drago's spirit. They well, have it's all okay. We can't, we can't talk about Andrew. the robot the whole episode when there's well, so much. Well, I okay. I've got some meat. Maybe it's the lettuce. Maybe it's it the pickles. Um, can we talk a little bit about these? Are Rocky boos? They're about people. They're about the people of Philadelphia. The people of Leningrad. 
this book has weird focus when it goes to just like peripheral characters. Uh, I think yeah. the first one that comes to mind to me is the pilot and the flight attendant on the Russians flight yeah, to New York. Let me find it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That uh, those little thumbnail portraits or even, uh, yeah. After the press conference where rock where Apollo and Drago are, you know, they're whatever that is that press conference before their fight. There's a brief paragraph at the end of that chapter talking about, just the guy sweeping up afterwards and how like, yeah. wow, okay, I got to be near celebrities. Let's, let's All dive right. into these. Yes. So first off, we've got page 23. We've got uh, Drago coming over. The captain, a solid, responsible looking man with his thoughts on retirement, picked up the microphone and announced in French, basically just announces the thing. It's not as important. Uh, he repeated the message in English, German and Spanish. He hung up the microphone and steepened his descent. He could see New York below. His body ached. He was getting too old to do this much longer. Maybe he'd put his resignation next month. He owed that to his passengers and crews. If he wasn't at his best, he shouldn't be flying. But if he didn't fly, what would he do? He laughed at himself. Walk. If he didn't fly, you walked. Okay, then we get one of those uh, one of those. I mean, that's just like breaks. that scenic dressing to give us a little insight into being too old to do your job. Yeah, I think that and is what much. I mean, like it's more, almost heavy handed. Yeah, but like great. it's definitely heavy handed. I like, I like it. it. <laughs> it's a heavy handed book, but the, the the I mean, it's heavy handed because I think it's not like precise enough. It's like if you're he basically just he being Stallone basically just chooses a guy who's around and is like the guy thought about how maybe he was too old. And it's like, it, it, it doesn't really make sense that like the guy's too old to be a pilot. Like, I don't know. Is he, is he an octogenarian? Like what's going on? Um, so, so that didn't totally work for me, but it's fun that the book does this crazy shit. The, the next uh, paragraph is a, a, about a new character. It says, Michelle, the stewardess for the first class section. She fastened her seatbelt and glanced out the window. From the air, New York looked exactly like what it was. Three islands connected by bridges to one another and to the mainland. Looked like exactly what it was did make me laugh. And I laughed again. It would, uh, she, she's like, uh, she it's looking unromantic. forward to partying when she lands. It says it would help make up for the flight, which had been boring. The whole plane had been reserved by Russians. Uh, Michelle wasn't up on her politics and she didn't care about Afghanistan or boycotts. She was more interested in getting out of her uniform and into some sheets, preferably not alone. Uh, then she describes the Russians and it goes on to be like, she really had the hots for Drago. Cause who would hot? I think it's very, I mean, I kept thinking and rewatching the movie and while reading the book, especially in the book where all of Drago's interiority is about how much he loves his wife. Which is a nice parallel with Rocky, who also loves his wife unbelievably a lot. True. Um, but how in Creed 2, when Drago shows back up, he's like, my wife left me because I lost that fucking match. I hope you're happy. You ruined my life. <sighs> um, which stings. Uh, and watching this, reading this book, I was like, there's no way in hell that that is canonical to what's happening in this book. Definitely. Um, it feels untrue to the performance in the movie as well. Right. Uh, in that when Drago is not finally knocked down, like, his wife is the only person who goes to him. Yeah. Which is very touching. Um, and again, a lot yeah, more I of that. I like, couldn't stop thinking about that there, choice. There's more of that oh, in yeah. the director's cut of stuff in the book where they talk about either Drago's interiority or his like, there's a moment in the fight, I think, or right before the final fight where it describes his wife looks at him 
and his expression is only noticeably different to her. Right. And I feel like yeah, uh, Dolph Lundgren does a little more of that in the director's cut, whether he's allowed to be a little more human. And especially in Creed 2, when you get to Creed 2, like the ending of Creed 2 breaks my heart. Same. Uh, and Beautiful. just like when he throws in the towel because he'd rather save his son than be a Russian again. It's just beautiful. And Yeah. I mean, I think that you can see the the elements that then later Stallone wanted to pull out more. Like mm-hmm. when the, the in the first fight with Apollo, when... Uh, Drago comes up through the floor. Like the look on Dolph Lundgren's face is like he's confused and terrified and very overwhelmed and stressed out. Oh yeah. And the like performance touches, which then like like turns the dial into robot the moment he's like, Oh right, boxing. I know how to punch. I can punch good. I punch hard. <laughs> That's what I do. Like the the way his expressions vacillate is like to me, like reads is good direction. That Stallone knows how to like play the moments. And he does it really artfully. And then in the book, right, he's just like, yep, that's what's happening. You're welcome. Well, yeah. And in the book, it's like the Russians who have been like training in a remote locale. They're like, they, they're like in total disbelief that someone would even conduct a boxing match this way. It's, it's like, it's so cheeseball to them that it's like a three ring, no pun intended, a three ring circus. And they're just like, it's to them this is just further proof of the decadence of of the the westerners and you know but, but you know it's funny what you said about uh drago and lamilla obviously they're given a lot more interiority in the book um which is a shame that it's not in the film because i really liked it i mean drago definitely evinces a level of sympathy here that's not in the movie i mean He's he. You get the sense he is just a cog in a in a Soviet machine, and if he dares to refuse orders, you know, you just one gets the feeling the Politburo will just sort of liquidate him and his loved ones and supplant him with the next guy in line. You know, uh, there's a point near the end of the book where Ludmilla seems terrified of what'll happen if he loses. She says, "You must win, or we will all lose." And it's like that's a chilling line. And then a few sentences later, he screams out like i win for ludmilla and me not for anybody else you you get this feeling that there's tremendous pressure on them that he well i mean in the film you should talk to paulie (laughs) i never knew pressure like this before you know no uh but it's like like in the film drago at best seems apathetic about killing in in the book he seems he finds it distasteful and, and ludmilla definitely does yeah, I think I mean they're they're living in an oppressive government, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's all about like, yeah, everything that's being put on like uh, the 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 significance of what he's doing that isn't in the ring, right? Yeah, it feels very much like the Russian government has said you should kill him. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, yeah. and to the point where in the book, and I feel like this is a sort of important difference. They ring the bell to stop the match, and Drago keeps punching upon right. him, which is not the same in the movie. Um, but it really feels like a purposeful, like, I'm going to murder you because this is the instruction and the guidance that it says, like, destroy him forever. No, right. um, one thing Which Drago is good at. One thing the book does contradictory in that way is the famous, probably the most famous line Drago has in this in the movie is, I must break you. In the book, I believe... More than if he dies, he dies. Well, it, those are the two. But I must break you okay. is a big one. And in the book, he says, I will break you. 
And yeah. I think the must is actually would have been better in the book because it is an order. It's like, I, I don't need want to do this. I must break you. Those are my orders. I will break you feels more like an active choice as a, as a this word. This is a good time for me to rehabilitate my image. So Hannah, <laughs> you laughed in, in my intro on my phrasing there, but this is a movie about a guy who's being sent to kill public figures. Mm-hmm. To, yeah, to weaken I, morale. Yes. I only laughed because the way you phrased it was so evocative, not because it is untrue. Okay, well, it came like right on the heels of you saying this is so overwritten. So I'm, <laughs> That's I'm not touchy. A, it's charming. I like how you overwrite things. I like it. Thank you. Well, you know, uh, yeah. ab- about the the Russians, though, it's interesting. Stallone points this out. It's a very, like, uh, very perspicacious little point he makes in the book, which is the banners aren't, they don't have banners of Stalin or Khrushchev because those guys were being, you know, de-emphasized at the time. And you even mm-hmm. get the feeling that the Russian premier, who's clearly a stand for Gorbachev, he's kind of, his head's on the chopping block too. There, there, it feels like there's this this culture of intense paranoia and fear. You know, you guys were talking about uh, them standing up and, and clapping. There's a famous anecdote uh, which may or may not be true, but I, I think it speaks to a greater truth that uh, Stalin was giving a speech before the Politburo, I think it was in the early 50s, late 40s, and everybody's standing up and they're clapping and clapping and it's going on and on. Nobody wants to be the first person to sit down after the standing ovation. And finally, there's a guy, an older guy in the Politburo, and he's like, I'm tired. I need to sit down. So he sits down and the next day they go over to his place and liquidate him and his family. And it's just like, you know, that was kind of, that was business as usual. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, and I think that's also what makes it, I think, charming to me that, um, uh, Rocky's uh, chaperones actually get names, and they start to feel like affection for. They them. love Rocky. I know That's he wins really them over the too. I loved that. He wins over everybody. I I love that Anton Leo. Those two guys, you know, I love and the, the way he writes it is actually very well done. He's like they were looking at each other like, hmm, you know. It's almost like Beauty and the Beast. Like, there's something here that wasn't here before. But what? <laughs> yeah, what, the arc you know? for the listener, the arc of these guys is that in the movie, they're just like there and they follow Rocky. And at one point, they can't follow him as he does one of his wilderness exercises. And they look like fools. But in the book, it's like they're scary guard guys. And then they watch Rocky for so long that they're like, He's kind of amazing. I mean, he's a weirdo, don't get me wrong, but he's kind of amazing. And there's a line that's like, he was a crazy man, but he was their crazy man. And then uh, there's like one more turn in the arc where there's a, a, a scene where Rocky chops down a tree that uh, I, I assume would be very hard to chop down. And the guys are like, okay, that was um, really impressive. And maybe we should have been more vigilant because he's actually maybe a good fighter and scary. <laughs> and, and don't they even introduce themselves is, is that the moment where they come forward they go after the tree yeah i am anton this is leo yeah or whatever yeah 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 uh, this I like- is rocky's whole deal he's so earnest and so pure-hearted that people just fucking love him and they all every like throughout his whole life once he stops being an enforcer for the mob and starts being the nicest uh, boxer he's a, a lovable enforcer though that's true. His true. jaunty little hats. But like people <laughs> love him and he wins them over through like the force of his personality, which is kindness right. and love. 
Like, he never wants to destroy an opponent. He just wants to win for whatever reason he wants to win. It's never about destroying the other guy until it's Drago. And then that even stops being about destroying the other guy and becomes about, like, it's important for America that I make it through this fight, (laughs) which is amazing. And this is why I'm so worried for Creed 3, where Rocky is just not in it, apparently. Hmm. We're well, ready that's... for a Rocky-less Creed. I mean, but kill him in the well, movie at least. Just let him die in I the have... movie. No, you can't. You can't because it's Stallone, and he won't let you do it. I mean, there's, there's. Stallone was asking whether he could not be the one who had cancer in Creed. He was mm. like, just make it some other guy, and the producers <laughs> were like, what? Like he just like doesn't. He doesn't have the perspective to be like, I could die because he still thinks on some level like. You can't kill Rocky. People will riot. <laughs> I don't. I here's my deal though. I also kind of think you can't hand over Rocky to a younger person. Like you Ooh. couldn't do it with Milo Ventimiglia in Rocky Balboa. He's not Rocky. He sucks. I though. don't. I yeah. He sucks. Whatever. But like you can't do it. Like and I, I don't like. Actually I like think... Adonis Creed as a character. I think he's great. Right. But I, I just worry fine. with Michael uh, B. Jordan directing this movie. Is it just going to be too much of the Creed show without Rocky? You know, I didn't know he was directing it. And now that you said that, I'm one over. I'm back on board. Because if you're going to take the like the Stallone thing, which is like he loves Rocky so much, he can't let go of Rocky. Mm. And he directs the movies and he's writing the novelizations and he's like so into Rocky. I think Michael B. Jordan has to be that level into Adonis Creed for me to get on board with a Rocky list. Hannah, do you want to know who the the boxer is in the third one? Yeah, it's Jonathan Majors. It's gonna be a good movie. The only thing that could be more exciting is if it was a (laughs) Sylvester Stallone directed Rocky-less Creed three. I'd be fine with that. Like this is like. I mean, he is still producing, so he may have had some thing. And I is Jonathan Majors playing like a Mr. T kid? Because that would be (laughs) Uh, important to me. His name is Anderson Dame. Great Perfect. name. Pretty good Perfect. name. I guess Victor Drago is also back, so get excited. Get hyped. Oh, fuck yes. Ooh. Awesome. I like it when enemies become friends. That's really important. Hell yeah. And I hope really they have a good. montage where they run down the beach and they splash in the water and they hug. Uh, <laughs> the best thing a Rocky movie has ever done. Um, no, but I think like the first two Creed movies are so dependent on Creed and Rocky and their relationship and the looming distant specter of Apollo who is dead. And that's a pain point, right? That like to not have Rocky... I'm not sure that Adonis Creed can carry a movie on his own. I can't wait to find out. Everything you've told me has really convinced me that I will see it opening weekend with joy in my heart. And I can't wait to find out. <laughs> let's let's talk for a second about the very beginning of this book, which I, I have to be honest. Like, I have always enjoyed Stallone as an actor. I have thought he's fine as a director. Uh, I didn't. Let me put it this way. I walked away from this book with a lot more respect for him than I had previously because he can feel so cartoony sometimes in his like unabashed ego as a personality that I really wasn't expecting the like generosity of spirit to give like these other characters so much interiority and some of his prose are legitimately compelling. So you have not spent enough time looking to his into his like big brown doe eyes. Like that's an Andrew problem. You would know all of this if you had spent enough time engaging emotionally with his big sad eyes. 
Yeah, Ooh. sorry, I, I'm not like you, and I don't get lost in a staring at a box of Junior Mints. Um, <laughs> okay, so the the beginning of this book, I mean, I do, that is kind of how I feel, which is like it. I do think he is like a little. Sometimes he reads as a little vacant to me, uh, somewhat <laughs> opaque. In, in, yeah, and I think I think there when people find him really compelling in quiet moments, sometimes I'm not seeing what they're seeing. Um, okay, but this book starts out just spitting fire. Uh, so we get a definitive answer on what happened in the uh, Rocky Creed rematch. Yeah. And I want to say, before but, uh, this is true of the movie too, I think this is a really brave narrative choice to do Rocky 3, have it end on this sentimental moment where you're like, Oh, they're like they're trying to like relive that that fight slash you know Creed doesn't really want to let it go. It's cute, and then you're pitching Rocky Four, and you're like, what if that's a symptom of how he will destroy himself with ego? Brilliant, right. just just incredible. But <laughs> one turn of phrase. This is so small, but something I really liked was uh da, 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 the this is just Rocky thinking about himself. For better or for worse, he felt he had gone through most of his life with boxing gloves on. It had made for tenuous handholds. Mm. Good. Yeah. For I like page that one. Too. I'm like, what a book. Yeah, there's there's definitely a feeling like, um, and, and again, I think this ties into the whole idea of natural world being overtaken by technology or whatever. But there's this very elegiac tone. It's very much a feeling of like the end of an era. I mean, like even in the at the end of the prologue, he's watching Apollo walking to his car and he says rocky watched his receding figure sensing the end of a boxing era uh and then it dri- he's driving through the old neighborhood you know and it's like south street like everything else had changed in the last few years the blue door fight club had closed and been replaced by a laundry the empty lots had been turned into small ugly shopping centers that resemble concrete blocks it feels like almost like it, it reminded me of this neil young song from 1983 this classic called uh, depression blues and it's like, he's basically like, oh, me and my wife were all dressed up with nowhere to go. And it's like, you know, all of our old hangouts have been boarded up and closed and or being bought by somebody nobody knows. And, um, and there's, so there's this feeling of aging. And then you've got like, you know, Paulie looking in the mirror and he's like, well, you know, 40 is better than a zero, you know. And then, <laughs> I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, guys, I, I, and perhaps I'm, I'm misinterpreting, but I think Rocky by the end of the night there that first night is he putting cologne on his cock i do remember this lead me there <laughs> i do remember this uh, yeah i i remember this as well it's on page I think that's 18 a... it's also nuts that polly is 40 that's how i look when i'm 40 <laughs> put me down. yeah I'm compared s- to where they're like rocky you're 38 and i'm like well he looks beautiful <laughs> yeah yeah there's like uh there's actually probably one of my favorite paragraphs is is very elegiac and it's um oh i got it here it's on page 116 he says rocky recognized a lot of familiar neighborhood faces in the crowd father carmine hadn't changed a bit mike the old cleanup guy at the gym now shuffled instead of walked his flat uh, his gray flat top hairstyle replaced by a bald pate ringed with snow white hair joe Chack looked too heavy to get behind the bar he tended much less to climb through the ropes of a ring Spider Rice was as shy and hesitant as ever, and his smile was just as warm. The Big Dipper was shrinking with age, but his handshake was still firm. Some were noticeable by their absence. 
Tony Gatzo, Rocky's former employer, had retired from the loan sharking business when somebody put a bullet in his head. His ever-present bodyguard, who resembled a glum cigar store Indian, had died from grief at the same time with two bullets in his head. <laughs> Others were just Died missing. from grief. Died from grief. Oh, God. Lead poisoning, I guess, you know. Others were just missing, frozen under a pile of papers in an alleyway, lost on a bar stool. Life went on. It's just, uh, you know, and, and you're right. I think, I think that prologue, uh, Andrew, what you're saying about it being like Apollo can't can't handle retirement you know there's like a i don't know there's a line at some point where he's he's uh, rocky says oh, i can't imagine apollo being content to be an ex-celebrity right and yeah so you get yeah. that you know pride you know it's it's yeah. the night of the fight you may feel Maybe a slight you're not, sting. it's not you versus him it's you versus you yeah right which is like a really um emotionally charged moment Definitely. That and, all comes out of like Rocky's deep sensitivity. I think that's something Stallone holds on to and brings back in a film like Rocky Balboa, where Spider Rico, the first person he ever fought in Rocky, is working the dish room at his restaurant. <laughs> like he right. mm-hmm. he does explore like what and it, it's Rocky too. When Rocky's just running the restaurant telling the old stories, he's just a relic. He's just, you know. Yeah. Something that people want to go, like an oddity people want to go listen to, but he's not relevant and he's not an athlete anymore. Though that movie shows that I guess he is still an athlete. Yeah, I mean, the worst part of that movie Let's is... Let's talk about but... cologne and penises. <laughs> yeah, go back to that. I want to circle back on an Ele- elegy for one more moment. Oh, please <laughs> and then we can, we can touch on the sexuality of this book. <laughs> um, but I it feel was... like even... As we go through the book, even Apollo starts to realize he really doesn't want to be doing this anymore. Uh, and I wish I could find the passages. But during the training montage, essentially, I feel like there are points when he like loves performing and the actual work of it. He's like, this sucks, actually. I'm tired. This is hard. I don't really want to do it. Right. But he's made this commitment to himself to like be the best forever. And even though he comes to a point where he doesn't really want it, he has to do it. Yeah. Um, which is extra sad that it kills him. Oh yeah, it's like his those scenes are almost perfunctory. Like it's not it's more of a performance than like actual knuckle down work. Like he's kicking off early mm-hmm. in the day. Uh there's a line where Rocky says, Pick it up, Apollo, move those feet faster. This ain't a disco, but it did resemble one and Rocky knew it. So <laughs> it's like it's like the performance of of being a big time superstar boxer, not necessarily actually doing the the unglamorous work yeah and i think that shows through on the page more because in the movie not only lundgren but like it's that mid-80s steroid body where like stallone and carl weathers look insane as does Dolph lundgren like their bodies are so perfect that apollo creed does not look like a late career boxer he looks amazing he looks like he could kick anyone's ass and he could kick many an ass but it's kind of the point like there's there's a part in the book where he's doing his like boxing with his sparring partner and he knocks the guy flat like apollo's not in bad shape he's a really good fighter but drago is better and stronger and more determined like apollo doesn't have the heart to really do it well i i also don't think like he's trying to convince himself he's still let let me jump on here with the sparring partner thing the part with the sparring partner really encompasses everything we're saying about how 
Creed still is this behemoth, but he's like lost perspective, and both are true. Because in this chapter with the sparring partner, which is like exclusive to the book and maybe the director's cut, uh, he Creed is like fighting an old friend and he just like totally lays him out. And it's like a little more brutal than everyone expected. And and Rocky goes over to the guy and is like, you okay, man? And he's like, yeah, I mean, like you're paying me a lot of money. I'm happy. Uh, but he, you know, Creed has made this really impressive display of of beating this guy and then Rocky's like all right like back to training and Creed is like no like you know good karma like I just had like an amazing moment we're calling this a day and it's something like 11 in the morning and that's the whole Creed issue in this book in like one passage is that he has something but the something he needs isn't just a certain level of punch he needs like a resolve that he just doesn't have and no one should be expected to have at the age that he's at. Yeah, I um I agree uh t- to talk about that um the idea of changing. I mean, I know there's the you can change, I can change. I mean, it's obviously made explicit in the movie and the book. But um okay, so my favorite filmmaker is Akira Kurosawa. Um and mm-hmm. uh his greatest uh, interlocutor, if you will, uh, at least for English-speaking people anyway, was a guy named Donald Ritchie. Um, and Ritchie formulated this idea that the thing that like binds all Akira Kurosawa, uh, all his great protagonists in his films, that, that they learn the essential value of change, that they never like stop growing and evolving, and that life must be seen as a constant process. And on, by contrast, his villains, the Kurosawa villains, are very staid, and they're pretty sure they know everything they need. They're usually a lot more physically powerful, or in much greater numbers. Like in the Seven Samurai, there's—I mean—they're fighting. You know, they're outmatched like twenty to one or something. But because the villains deem themselves complete, they're destined, in a way, to be vanquished by the Kurosawa protagonist, who's who has at least that ultimately has enough humility to allow himself to change and i think rocky obviously has this belief or has this ability to change but it's also inversely clear for apollo's arc where you could one could argue he dies in part because he's unwilling to adapt like you said he's unwilling to um change his uh his uh, point of view or, or, or adapt to the changing of the environment. You know, there's a part in page 52 where he says, I don't want to change. I like being who I am, which is great and very, you know, healthy self-esteem, but it's, it's kind of a problem because Apollo says we have to live on the edge. We have to have the action because we're the warriors. So, and what is a warrior without a war uh, at that point? Um, you know, in some ways, I, I, and partly I think it was because of uh, I had JFK on the brain already because of the whole part we talked about with the uh, who is the 35th president. But I kept kind of finding myself um, making uh, comparisons in my mind between Apollo Creed and JFK. You know, they they were kind of the, just sort of those beautiful but doomed people. Well, we know they're doomed. And it's like they both of them have this special kind of grace that makes them seem invulnerable. And then so then the violence of how they die is so much more brutal and unsettling, you know. 
it, it's like there's several passages in the novel where Stallone actually describes his seemingly effortless, like, quote, amazing grace. It's like no one can lay a glove on Apollo until, you know, they can. And there's times where Apollo will be talking and it's like his salesmanship is almost Kennedy-esque. Uh, there's a great quote here where Adrian is viewing Apollo from a, a bit of a safe distance. Uh, she had seen him like this before, face aglow, hands wildly gesticulating, body emitting energy that was as tangible as sparks. She was never able to tell for sure where the show ended and Apollo began. He could be a wily con man delivering the big hype as he had been in the centennial bout, or he could be a compassionate assistant as he was in helping Rocky against Clubber Lang. She sincerely liked Apollo, but she was wary of him. Things happened when he was around. He made them happen. And Lord, haven't we all known people like that? Like people who, people in our lives who seem to draw events and drama towards them like a magnet, like something about them through the sheer force of will. They, they just bring this amount of trouble or chaos or whatever it is. You know, uh, there's a point where they talk about him, uh, a man of many facades, but so many that even Apollo didn't maybe know who the real Apollo Creed was. And there's times where it feels like Apollo is kind of conning himself almost, in the book at least, where he's like, you know, he's using patriotism to rationalize the fact that he wants to get back into the ring, you know? And so I think that's part of what makes it so brutal and sad i guess it's i guess it's what all of you guys were saying is that he he refused to evolve he didn't understand the life or death stakes and for him it's just an excuse for pageantry um and recapturing glory days you know it's it's a it's it's like a miscalculation caused by pride and I think in a way it's kind of perfect that Las Vegas is where the fight occurs because the flashiness of the surface hides that really deadly reality, mm -hmm. which is a, such a great uh, metaphorical foil for Apollo. Uh, like actually Stallone makes a, at the start of chapter eight, Stallone makes like a really pity, excellent shorthand, uh, pretty accurate, quick sketch of, of Vegas's birth. It was like, it's almost worthy of like somebody like James Elroy, although ironically, well, not ironically, but interestingly, he wrote it like 10 years before Elroy started kind of interspersing Vegas into his fiction. But it, he describes it as a very like unnatural and artificial thing. It like, it extends even to just the creation of the city, this non-organic idea of having a city out in the middle of nowhere, you know, mm -hmm. where there's no water. And it's like, he, 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 he kind of, Stallone describes Vegas as being like just it's like a little too extreme. It's a little too shiny. It's a little too big. It's it's to to you, you can't feel totally comfortable. It's like under the denture cream, <laughs> and you know the hairspray. You can kind of pick up a whiff of dried blood every now and again, and I think that on reality is basically sort of a foreshadowing. Uh, there's this whole description. I don't have to read the whole thing on where they describe the ballroom scene. It's on page eighty-five. And uh, he says the inside of the ballroom was lined with bleachers, steel beams, pipes, and lots of nuts and bolts hidden under velvet. What a great, you know, great little sentence microcosm yeah. that is, right? And I mean, there's even, you know, there's stuff about, uh, oh, geez. Oh, some of the people were dancing to the music, but it was difficult to keep from tripping over the cables that the media people had laid out. <laughs> 
uh, the women dressed, the skimply dressed women sat on swings, hung from the ceiling. Overhead, a pair of small planes, one Russian, the other American, battled it out in a miniature dogfight. I love that. That's so good. I, I think that's a great point about it being sort of like uh, it, un, it underlying the glitz and glamour. Um, whereas like later in the film and the book, the the Russian fight is like just the nakedest <laughs> yes. show of brute force with, with no dressing at all. Uh, going back to what you're saying about Creed and, and that passage specifically about how he changed from one thing to another in these Rocky movies. He was foe, then he was like trainer than he was best friend it's almost like his fatal error is to repeat himself he's a guy who is capable of evolution and he does it quite often and then the thing that is his downfall is that he succumbs to the idea of glory days or that one can like return to a phase that they were at previously right yeah he thinks he can go home again i guess but he's not like a rigid guy he's not a guy who can't who can't morph into into something else which i think is interesting yeah he also like can't see drago for what he is like he's really caught up in the idea of, like it's an exhibition match it's for fun like what's the yes. harm i'm gonna thrash him it's no big deal he can't take it seriously enough even though everyone around him is like this guy's scary have you seen him he's huge <laughs> yeah he's huge and we don't know anything about him no one has seen him box in america so we don't know what he's like and creed's like not worried about it at all when he like absolutely should be um, cause he's just like a fun guy who likes to have fun and like, won't be serious. Um, and I feel like even with his past matches that we've seen with Rocky, he's still like fun and he's having a good time with it. And Drago would rather break his skull than have fun ever. <laughs> yeah. He does the same thing in the first movie when he enters for the bicentennial dress as uncle Sam to the, like the Marine him. I mean, yeah. it's not as excessive he's a showman. as it's James so Brown. long in Rocky Four, <laughs> and it's cut really from the book entirely. I mean, there's like music and glitz and glamour, but there's no James Brown in this book. Yeah, he's not I specified, mean, and it's a shame because that's so essential to Drago's like mounting confusion and contempt and stoicism about the showboat and Yankees. You know, it's so I, I'm assuming. I guess do you guys think the book was maybe written while the producer was still like negotiating who was going to be the musical act in the scene or something like that. I mean, that's very possible. I, I feel like that happens. That happens quite often. So yeah. Hmm. speaking of evolution, small, just a small point and we'll move on from it really quick. Rocky is like obsessed with computers in this book. <laughs> it's weird. Why is he doing an English program? Does he not? Because he wants to better himself. He's always trying to better himself. That's part of his whole deal is he doesn't want to be some bum from the streets. He wants to be somebody. And that means being smart and being educated and being so well-spoken. He has like an English computer program and he has a, a, a another one that's like about history. And the history one makes sense to me. He's like teaching his son facts. But there's an earlier part where he's doing the English program and he's getting, as they say, whatever, dings and boinks. Like he's getting some of them wrong. <laughs> Look, part of the gag with Stallone is that he, especially as Rocky, has that like slushy, slurry way of speaking, which makes people think that he's an idiot, even though he is a very smart, thoughtful man. And so is Rocky inside. That like, for Rocky to be like, I want to be seen the way that I see myself, which is a smart, thoughtful man. And to try and improve his grammar and improve his like intellectual capacity like that feels so true to his character to me right. that he's spending two hours a night by himself working on bettering the way he speaks 
and presents himself and his in- intellectualism. Like, let let Stallone. Here's what I have to say: having read Rocky Four and 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 loving his writing, let Stallone novelize a new film he didn't direct, Escape Room <laughs> Three. Novelized by Sylvester Stallone. I'm ready. Is, That'd be a really fun retirement career for him. Oh, yeah. If he wanted yeah. to continue, because Rambo, I, I assume Last Blood is the last Rambo movie. I don't know. Does he die in that? I don't know. Um, no, he definitely doesn't die in it. I haven't seen it, but like he talks about still wanting to do more of them. But like if there ever comes a point where he he can't do them and he doesn't want to like deep fake himself into movies, I think if he just wanted to do like Rambo novels, I would read them. Mm. Well, Rambo is based on a book by a, an actual author. That's not important anymore. That that author may as <laughs> well not exist. I'm just saying, and I think the direction in which the Rambo movies go are violently opposed to the... Of course. Like, the movies right. are violently opposed to the original movie. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. This is why I've never watched any... So, like, I watched... First Blood, and was like, wow, this is a really sad movie about a man who has been mistreated by his government, right? Blah, blah, blah. Fuck the police, etc. <laughs> and I went to my friend, and I was talking to my friend John, and I was like, so I assume John in the Rambo. future Rambo movies, <laughs> Rambo goes home, he gets help, they take care of him, and he was like, oh no, he does murders. And I was like, not gonna watch those. Not interested. No, thank you. I feel like he eventually does go <laughs> home, though, but then he does murders at home. Oh no! Well, Poor bl- Rambo. Isn't part three take place in Afghanistan? Am I wrong? Part about three that? is the one where he teams up with the Taliban, yeah. which you know James that was very Bond popular already in did the that. 80s. Yeah, like very normal, very good guy. Very thing normal. To do. We all did it. <laughs> who among right. us? He who has not teamed up with the Taliban cast the yeah. first stone. Right, America I mean, did it. We were so all young once. I know. I mean, we know. You know. You know. You do create. You experiment with things sometimes at at that age. Uh, but yeah, in First Blood, I mean, he's he's got that famous speech where he's like, you know, we didn't, we, you know, we didn't, they, we tried to win, but somebody didn't want us to win. Then they came home and they spit on us. Which, by the way, there is literally not a single historical recorded case of somebody being spat on, a veteran being spat on. That is a myth, a urban legend. Like everybody's like, oh yeah, I know a guy who said he knew a guy, and it's like, well, do you, do you, mm-hmm. did it happen to you or to this guy? No. No, there's a whole book about it called uh, Myth Making in America, MIA, and it's a fascinating book uh, about that. Anyway, sorry. I mean, John Rambo shows up in that town. He's clearly a veteran, and that town destroys him for no reason whatsoever. Because Brian Dennehy just felt like it that day. What a piece of shit. I know. There's a couple things we have to hit before we shut this down. First of all, the janitor, which of course is Paige... 54. So it's the press conference. Uh, It says the janitor had finished setting up the folding chairs an hour ago and was now off in a private alcove, finishing up his morning pint of ignorant (laughs) Willie, otherwise known as I.W. Harper. He'd be back in the hall soon because he wanted to see the champ and Mr. Creed. They meant something to him. He had watched both of them fight for years. He felt that he knew them. Their victories had made up for his failures. (laughs) He felt that he had shared something with them. Life. Uh, this, it's it's good and bad. It's both. That's like a really beautiful, loving description of a parasocial relationship. Mm. Like, as opposed it to our is... current vibe, which is like bad, you should not do that to people. 
like for Stallone to say, like sometimes hero worship is a nice thing to have in your life. You have someone, you share things with them, even little, though you have no relationship with them. It's like, a little consolation nice. prize, you know, for Hannah, whatever. it's only kind of bad because it's written by Sylvester Stallone, the star of Rocky IV. That's the only thing that made me roll my eyes a little. When, it, when it, his, his victories had made up for his failures. I was like, come on. Yeah, he literally says failures. I mean, I, I underlined that. and I was like, whoa, that's a strong one. That's a strong word to go with. But yeah, you know what? It reminds me, um, there's a book, uh, a novel called The Fan's Notes from uh, this guy, Frederick Exley. I think it was from the late 60s, early 70s. And he talks about this idea of kind of numbing the sting of one's own failures, quote, by like following certain sports figures that you closely identify with. It kind of reminded mm-hmm. me of that in a way. Uh, I, granted, it was only just a couple paragraphs, but I think it's a I valid. Mean, if you can't watch a sports team come from the bottom and make it to the top and feel like you were part of that, like that's a special experience that human beings have. It's true. No, I agree. I, but he, 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 <laughs> grant me that this is a little funny, written by is, the star yes. of the movie. And also, it comes from a place of like sensitivity and understanding and open heartedness. I think it can be both. It, yeah, it's it's a little self congratulatory, but yeah, it's also very open hearted at times. Ah, it's weird, you know. Yeah, it can be both, like you'd say. Hmm. You know, when Rocky loses the first fight, but what matters is that he made it through all the rounds. That's unbelievably good shit. Yeah. Oh, for and sure. And Stallone knows it. <laughs> All right, let me get my other major criticism out of the way. Once again, drew joy from this, found this thing really funny. But before Rocky goes to Russia, there's this very, let's face it, Trump-esque thing. Like when Trump tells those anecdotes about soldiers coming up to him crying and thanking him. (laughs) It's like this book goes there for like four pages. Where first off, so there's a couple extra scenes. First off, he gets denied the opportunity to fight uh, Drago by the boxing commission, which is, it makes sense. Yeah, I love actually uh, that this then, series has a lot of just like scenes of Rocky at commissions, like asking things and they're like, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then then the State Department, as we've said, comes to visit him and is like, don't go, like that would be really bad for America. And he's like, no, I must, I must for for reasons of valor. And then the fuck you've already referenced it but the VFW comes up to him and they're like you're an American hero to us and we love you so damn much. And then there's another one. Don't the, the Sisters of the Revolution, right? Yes. This mm-hmm. is the one where I, I wrote down mm-hmm. this is Trump anecdote shit. I as a per, Andrew uh, both Andrews and I, we are post Cold War people Mm -hmm. like i don't think we can really understand the fervor of the cold war where some bum from the street's gonna go to russia and he's gonna beat a russian and he's gonna stop russia from intruding on america like that's a a level of like patriotic heroism that i think from our post 9-11 perspective cannot fully comprehend like, I, I agree right. with you that it's cheesy and it's, like, over the top. I think it is the 80s, mm-hmm. and I cannot hold it against this book or movie. Uh, I, I, I would agree. Um, I think, be- well, uh, you guys, uh, I mean, uh, you, you guys were all pretty cognizant of the world when 9-11 happened, yes? Um, yes. 
Okay. So, but you remember the enormously bizarre um, backlash, put out the flag, or or not backlash, but the thing about, you know, put out all your flags. uh, Freedom fries. Freedom fries, courtesy of the red, white, and blue. And it was very much an attempt, and it was a pretty cynical and calculated one, I think, to try to kind of recreate that Cold War mid-80s mentality. Uh, except it was like in this way, it was like the, the stakes were a lot smaller because, you know, I mean, it's not total annihilation of the world. This It's just, you know, so just these guys in the Middle East. But I think like that's what I think Toby Keith and those guys were trying to do was create an iconography like that, where it's like, we're going to go over there and America is going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. So they were very much trying to personify that. So I, I, I and, and because I think you guys saw how quickly that didn't work. <laughs> Uh, both as as metaphor and as actual military reality, um, I can see why you guys would kind of be like, when you see something like this, you're like, yeah, but we know this ain't going to work out. Well, there was a certain level of naivety. Plus, we knew so little about the USSR. I mean, one of the ironies of the USSR was that they had spent so much time drawing this so-called Iron Curtain, as Churchill called it, around themselves that we had no idea how bad their economy was foundering and how out of date their technology was how poorly trained their their troops were and how close to mutiny a lot of these people were. And and so we had this idea. We really thought they were all like Drago. I really do think that to an extent. I mean, granted, I was pretty young, but I, I got that impression that he seemed like a pretty, you know, like a fairly uh, representative specimen of, of the USSR. I actually think it's shocking that this movie doesn't end with Drago going, I'm not fighting, I give up. Mm. That, like he comes to some like capitalist realization <laughs> right. that like right, it is right. the right thing to do to lose and throw the fight. Um, I kind of always remember it that way somehow. And I think it's that moment where he's like, I'm doing this for me, which feels like the moment he loses yeah. is when he mm. gives up fighting for Russian valor. But like, I, I somehow in my memory, I'm always like, yeah, he says I'm doing this for me. And then he looks Rocky in the eye and chooses to take the blow and lose, which is just not would true. You, that, that would actually be compelling and has never happened in a Rocky movie. Every Rocky movie basically ends with a, a knockout or like they get to the end. <laughs> grant, me, grant me a little latitude here. like Longitude no, only. Longitude know. only, Andrew. The reason <laughs> that that hasn't happened is because Sylvester Stallone, a brilliant actor, director, novelizationist, he is not capable of fitting that into like his like egotistical Rocky worldview. He can't he can't do that to Rocky. I think I think it's okay yeah. to to admit that he has that like one fault. Yeah. I agree. And I think it's a it's a problem with Rocky five. And Rocky Balboa, where he should lose both of those fights. He doesn't fight in Rocky Five. That's crazy. Rocky Five is just a street fight. Right, but like he should lose it. Like after Rocky One, when he loses, he he'll lose the first fight and then win the big fight that really matters, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the rhythm of the movies. But what you really need for me, especially in Rocky Balboa, he should be like, he's way too fucking old. There's no way he can win. He should lose. And then come to the realization of it's really fucking over. I have to commit to my son, which he does and also wins, which is mm. bad. Mm. Yeah, I'm I mean, with you on that, Andrew. I'm totally, I agree. Rocky Five takes place months after Rocky Four. So he could still win that fight. He, yes, he has brain damage, but he could still punch somebody. Yeah, no, he can. It just feels like there there should 
come a point where he loses again because he is old and tired and not as good. And that's okay. Like, it has to be okay that he can lose sometimes. Sure. And Andrew Overby, you are so correct that Stallone's like, no, no. Once Rocky wins, he's a champion forever. And that is narratively not as compelling as it could be. I think the conceit of this movie, four, is the type where you are not allowed to make sequels about the same guy fighting. Like, if if your whole movie is going to be like, oh, of course I have to do this fight to avenge my friend who couldn't see we were over the hill. It's like, okay, you're allowed to do that. Go avenge him. But then you can't do another movie where you're like, I gotta fight this guy in this fucking alley for my reputation. Tommy the gun. Tommy yeah. gun. So, uh, I, I just really fast, um, talking about this, it reminded me, um, I actually went and saw Rocky Five opening weekend with a couple of my friends. We were, I don't know, in the seventh grade, I think, or eighth, maybe. And we had been, there had been a lot of rumors, this was before the internet, of course, but there had been a lot of rumors that he died at the end of it. And I remember leaving the theater, my two friends were actually disappointed he didn't die. Not because they didn't like Rocky, they loved Rocky, but... They somehow, even at the age of 12 or 13, sensed the, the narrative arc would, would be po- poetically closed in such a nice way by that. And they were actually, like, actually disappointed. We talked about it off and on the rest of the night, and they're like, yeah, I'm really disappointed that they, they didn't do it that way. Well, especially because Rocky V brings back John Avildsen to direct. It has a whole, like, end of movie clips montage of like here's all those great rocky movies we loved we're never making another one (laughs) like i mean as much as rocky balboa is a better end to the rocky series before the creed series takes over rocky five is the last movie rocky balboa is just a better version of rocky five in a lot of ways i was just gonna say um there is uh, uh, like you andrew i I had a fair amount of respect for Sylvester Stallone, and I, I actually have found him really winning in a couple roles. Like, I really, really like him in Copland. I think he's really Copland's moving. so good. Yeah, and he does, he displays Hang a wide cash. range. Spy and Kids 3D. He is good in Spy actually, Kids 3D. He is. That's a great movie. I will, I will. He is a good actor. Yes. But, uh, I, but I will say, I did, like you, Andrew, I came away from reading this novelization with a much uh, stronger appreciation for like he has a very good h- highly tuned sense of craft in his writing and uh, so which is why I wanted to preface it by saying that before I say this because there's there is an issue I have with the book uh, especially in the the big well almost exclusively actually it's in the big fight scenes it's not that the writing's lousy or anything the fight but, scenes are the least interesting part of the book Right. In my it, it, humble opinion. Oh, I would agree. And it's I think the main trouble is his descriptions, while like they're technically accurate, right? I mean they're pictorializing what happens. They're pictorializing the action, but they don't give any sense of what the characters like strategies or interiorities or why one action yes. follows another, right? It's a yes. lot of like suddenly Rocky did this or Clubber rallied all of a sudden. And it's like, well, in a sense these scenes are you can get away with that in film because there's a level of immediacy where motivations can can be more opaque, I think. But in novels, it's all but inherently promised to us that we're not going to just get descriptions. We're going to get reasons for actions. We're going to get causes you know, and effects and explanations for how this or that character is able to summon 
the will or or the motivation to do this you know unless i mean unless the novelist is like you know fucking brett easton ellis or you know dow lin one mm-hmm. of those guys where it's like it's supposed to be incredibly vacuous and vacant <laughs> you know and we but, see vacant novelizations from like people who are essentially asleep at the wheel who don't care about the job uh, oh, the weird sure. thing about this novel is that like it, it is rich and it is it does have all of this depth to it, except then when the two big fights happen, the depth sort of goes away. And uh, the, the, the other complaint I have about it is that his description of action is often good, or his turns of phrase are often good, but then right. in the second fight, he recycles some of them, where mm-hmm. <clears throat> two times in the book he says, someone got punched, which made them double over. Then... Uh, Drago corrected his posture. Yeah, which is a very nice phrase. I can can get like maybe an editor needed to be a little more vicious on that moment just to get something different. For me, a person who doesn't know enough about boxing, I can follow what's happening in these fights in the book. Yeah. Oh yeah, which yeah. for and for me for like I I agree that I think the fights are like the least interesting part and it's a lot of like right hook uppercut this happens pow pow whatever. You release a flurry of blows. I, I can right. I understand what's happening and I can follow like at what point someone is hurting too much, at what point the other person like loses their footing or has to backpedal. It's clear enough that I get it as a as a person who doesn't understand boxing, which I appreciate. And then I think like the the first fight particularly is fine. And then crescendos in Apollo's death, which is beautiful. Yeah, the way that's written. Like is the so moment nice. where it's yeah. unbelievably gorgeous where you're getting like kind of rote boxing stuff and Apollo is hurting and hurting and he's and then he's dizzy and then he feels nothing and then he feels absolute elation. Yeah. His brain is just like gone to a place where he feels great yeah. and then he dies and his brain shuts down. He says down. something and the way like that is written, Apollo the way that, leaped into legend or something. Yeah, really the end nice. of that chapter, like... Both the actual moment where the knockout happens, then there's like this crash of overlapping dialogue, the end of the fight, Rocky's like, get an ambulance, what do you mean there isn't an ambulance already here, what's going on, Drago's doing his interview, blah 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 blah, and then it ends on like the punchiest of closing lines for the chapter, where Rocky's like, hold on, hold on, and then the line is like, but he let loose and went into legend, or whatever, which is amazing. And so, like, I'm... The fights are not ideal, but when he knows how to play the moment within the fight, he does it so beautifully. Yeah, I I like all that stuff, too. Um, For me, it was more just a matter of, well, why does this person suddenly rally? You know, what is it that happens internally? Did they have a memory of something, or did they draw on some physical trick they had learned from their years as a professor? You know, that was was my only thing. So There are a lot. No, I totally agree. There are points where, like, the like duke and polly will be like do this do this and the narration will say like rocky had forgotten strategy now he's just punching and i'm like was he ever thinking i mean rocky's not a strategy guy notoriously he's a take punches guy but you do feel like well at some point he was trying to strategize right right (laughs) i agree with you there i would love to know i like also just from a perspective of like i'm curious about boxing i don't understand the strategy of boxing and i wish sly stallone would teach me that in this book andrew i want to hear your quote but i i just want to add one sentence basically it's just i would argue 
this is not a book problem. This is a franchise problem. I don't think the Rocky movies do a good job with the like the fight. The Rocky movies are great because of the buildup, the montages, the training, the emotions, some of the emotions on the peripheral of the fight. The only things we really remember about most of the fights, maybe except for the first one, are like the last round. The first rounds never matter in these books. They're just people punching each other and it looks good. And what shorts is he wearing? The first line I like in this is this is even before Apollo's down. He's just hurting a lot. And it says the referee knew the fight should be stopped, but he also knew Creed was capable of miracles. Pretty good. Uh, Okay, here we go. Uh, Apollo didn't know where he was. He felt lighter than air. He was flying, and it was wonderful. All he could see were blurred lights of many different colors. He had never experienced anything like this before. He wanted to shout how great he felt. Then he heard an explosion far, far away, and the many-colored lights shattered into blinding slivers of white that shot like rockets into a black field and disappeared leaving only darkness. We go back to reality for a while, like people reacting to his uh, imminent death. And then the end of the chapter is Duke grabbed the man by the belt and jerked him away from Rocky and Apollo. Rocky cradled Apollo's head in his arms. Hold on. You can do it. I know you can. Just hold on. But Apollo let loose and flowed into legend. Really good. Like, I think that the visual in the movie of that Pieta is like astoundingly beautiful and Stallone manages to capture that emotion with those like two lines in his novelization which is very impressive and I don't know that word what's that oh it's an image of a a Mary holding Christ of Mary holding the dead Jesus you should google it it's a really beautiful thing. In Catholic stations of the tableau. cross, it's it's a tableau, right? Where it's like they bring him down from the cross and he's placed in the arms of his mother. It's, it's I believe, the second to last station of the cross. If, uh, I'm, I'm an old Catholic boy, so, you know. Anyway, There's a, yeah. a beautiful sculpture in the Vatican of it. Mm-hmm. By, I, I want to say like Michelangelo. It's I like astoundingly it gorgeous. Yeah, Michelangelo and sounds right. Give it a little Google, Andrew, and you'll know what I mean. I'll have a good evening with it. Join us next week for our (laughs) Da Vinci Code episode. Uh, Andrew, uh, I think that passage you read of Apollo kind of like in his final moments of any sort of clarity is so interesting because in the movie, like I agree, the image of Rocky cradling Apollo is beautiful, but sort of like the moment where he has his last impact and it's the slow motion and it's like cutting to his wife, cutting to Duke, cutting to all these things is so excessive in eighties that it doesn't have the beauty of that moment. And it's, again, I think it, I, I'll have to rewatch the director's cut and see if that plays differently in the director's cut. Cause it seems like Stallone wanted to make a much more elegant movie than he made. And they just, the studios like fast edits, montage, glitz, glamor, all these things. And as that, kind of prose describes like he had such a different view of what this could be and i think it's really compelling you know um there is a interesting after the part about um where he's experiencing that incredible woozy euphoria uh then there's a switch to a really clinical heartbreaking description which i really liked that sun jerk uh from that to that it says the back of apollo's head crashed into the mat with the sickening sound a watermelon made when dropping from a great height the occipital lobe of apollo's brain was crushed immediately hemorrhaging started the blood swelled inside his cranial cavity putting more and more pressure on the brain literally squeezing it so it becomes extremely like 
kind of revolting and and extremely like clinical, yeah. you know, which I thought was an interesting switch. And I like that Stallone does that research to like get those. I mean, I don't know if those facts are 100% right, but they sound right. It sounds scientifically accurate. And I, again, it, it gives you a different appreciation for this series of a guy who is willing to do the research and delve into the, the depths of the characters and things. Well, yeah, I mean, he's, he's even got some, uh, some literary illusions in this book. I mean, that uh, I would be remiss if I did not mention, you know, he's William Blake on uh, page 53, the eye of the tiger burning bright. Uh, and then on page 106, I'm almost positive he's making an allusion to an E. Cummings poem uh, called Pity This Busy Monster Man Unkind Not, I, 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 which is funny because that poem is very much like a rejoinder about like uh, the, the like ceaseless clomp of technology uh, at the expense of our natural world, which seems to be a theme here. So, yeah, I mean, Stallone, he's, uh, he, he impressed me several times. You know, there's even a little bit of like... Uh, almost like Terry Gilliam, like really dark satire where uh, Apollo's watching the news cast and it, it's the, he turns on the t- set. It's like a small point of color began in the middle of the screen and spread like a cancer Oof. until uh, a local news anchor woman was discernible. The newswoman finished up a story on a local fire that killed three people and injured two more. Arson was suspected, she reported brightly. <laughs> when they returned from a commercial break, the sports would be next. Soon the face of a chubby sportscaster with a too tight tie that gave him a choked look filled the screen. After exchanging a few fire and sports jokes with the anchor woman, he turned and looked directly into the camera, eyes twinkling, voice professionally viral and monotonous. Um, I, I honestly have seen this sort of thing. I don't know if you guys have ever watched much local news back in the day, but I have seen stuff like that where you would have a, like a sportscaster, uh, segue and it would be like, so speaking of tragedy, the cubbies <laughs> are doing so. And it's like, dude, you just went from the fucking siege of, you know, Sarajevo yeah. to the cubbies are down six and a half games. Yeah, maybe not, you know, but it's, it would be that kind of like weird plastic disingenuousness and i thought he really captured it in just a couple lines there yeah he was i'm 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 thinking of this man in a lot higher regard than the high regard i already held him in dan jeremy brooks you are a 10 year old boy (laughs) wow (laughs) your dad is the most famous boxer in the world Mm. he's a good dad and he really loves you and you know it, and it's great, and you love him, and you love your mom, and your life is good. And you don't always understand what adults are up to, but you understand that they have good intentions, right? And one day your dad, the world champion boxer, champion of the world, Rocky Balboa, hands you the novelization of Rocky IV. <clears throat> Knowing what you know now, Would you read it? Do you think it would enrich your life? Would you recommend it to your school buddies? Who, uh, that very funny part in the book where Rocky Jr. is like, that's my dad. And his friend's like, yeah, we know. Yeah, we're not (laughs) dorks. You think we are nerds? Amazing. (laughs) Anyway, would you recommend this book to your school chums? 
I would. Um, I would. I would recommend it without much equivalent. Uh, excuse me, which without much qualification. Um, I think it's pretty well written, and I think it does a pretty good job of showing that my dad is the greatest American in the world, and you know, and also that, uh, you know, that Las Vegas is you know a pretty creepy town in a lot of ways. And it also tells us that uh, the uh, last uh, $110,000 bills in circulation in the country uh, were still going on in the mid-80s, which, incidentally, just as an aside, uh, I was preparing research a couple years ago for an episode of a podcast I did on Midnight Run. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that film. But, uh, yeah, of it's, course. It's one of the, Great movie. It's one of the greatest films ever made. And um, But basically, it all hinges on the idea that the guy is carrying around $10,000 bills in his belt and my gal Heidi being the uh, <laughs> uh, very uh, uh, tenacious researcher that she is which is one of the reasons why we first met uh, found out that they had actually stopped circulating $10,000 bills back in uh, like 69 and today there are only probably 300 in circulation sort of drawing a pretty big plot hole in the midst of Midnight Run which did not it, it diminished my love of the movie, not at all, but still, I just thought it was kind of neat that Stallone threw that in there. So yes, I would recommend this to my school chums, and uh, I think it would just further burnish my dad's uh, reputation as greatest dad, greatest American, greatest boxer, probably of all time. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And Dan, you mm-hmm. you have oh, yes. one of these for us, do you not? I do. Okay. Hannah Blackman. So, <clears throat> you're a large, ungainly domestic service robot with absolutely no reason to exist. Not in life and certainly not within the Rocky universe. I should have known I was going to get the fucking robot. <laughs> Honestly, it was just luck of the draw. I could, I could I, you know. Your world is comprised entirely of keeping an indolent and possibly feeble-minded fellow in beer and endless bunches of bananas. You've begun to feel the first stirrings of deep, melancholic dissatisfaction and indeed even rebelliousness, but you've not been equipped with the complex binary language required to verbalize these emotions. If in the unlikely chance that you are ever granted access to anyone outside this stiflingly bourgeois nouveau riche household, would you, if for no other reason than to give this person a small glimpse into the yawning existential torture chamber that is your inner life, would you recommend to them the Rocky IV novelization? I absolutely would recommend Rocky IV to any person who wanted to understand that being a robot means being abused by a lout. Yes. Um, my existence sounds awful, and it's broken my spirit and my intelligence. Um, yeah, no, I think this book is very good. I think it is very well written. It is a great balance of this happens, this happens, and also like literary um, largesse. Good book, big fan, would recommend. Probably wouldn't recommend it to someone who has no relationship to Rocky as a franchise. Um, you might want to read the other three books first to get to it. I think coming in cold into Rocky Four might be a little tough. Um, maybe. I mean, the book in particular gives you the background you need, I think, between, you know, Apollo and Rocky and all of that. But, I, you know, I wouldn't want anybody to miss out on the real depth of the Adrian-Rocky romance. Um 
which is not the forefront of this book in particular, for example. But yeah, no, loved it. Would recommend. Big fan. Good, good one. Good job, Sly. Andrew Marco, your Cora Creed. Your husband died. Ooh. In the book, in the book, you kind of uh, tastelessly uh, said that his death was worse than the Kitty Genovese thing, which is, you know, in 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 your reality, that might be a reasonable thing to say. But since he's a fictional character, I found that a little fucked up. Um, mm. You got a lot of free time because your husband doesn't exist anymore. Uh, would you read Rocky Four by Sly Stallone? Oh, absolutely. Uh, this book's great. I, I want to read some more Rocky books. Uh, I think Stallone's prose is really interesting. I'm, I can't believe I didn't know this until I got on the episode that he had written it, and I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed what it added to the book. I enjoyed the interiority it added. The only thing I would wish there was more of was some stuff that uh, more stuff that wasn't in the movie. You know, I think I'm uh, Greece and those kind of books are the high watermark where I'm like, give me like 30 to 40 pages of stuff. That's just not in the book. I want that all the time. And I could have done with more of that. Like the prologue where we get to see more of the fight, the third fight was really exciting to me. And I want more of that. Uh, so I hope if I read some more Rocky books, it has more of that, but I would absolutely read this again. I would absolutely recommend this to people. And as Hannah says, like, if you don't know Rocky, you're probably not going to like it. But if you like Rocky at all, read this book. All right. Andrew Overby, my oldest friend on the podcast. You are a prostitute in Las Vegas. Uh, Polly Panino comes up to you. Uh, you, you know, I would not have pulled that last name with a gun. <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> and... You know, your transactional things go forward. He's, he starts talking to you. You say $100 for an hour. He disappears for a while looking for money. He comes back with a copy of Sylvester Stallone's Rocky IV <laughs> novelization. Would you take this book as payment for sex? And would you read it? And would you recommend it? I'm the, I'm the sex worker. I'm not Pauly, right? Yes, you're the sex worker. Okay, because Paulie, I don't think, could read. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would, knowing what I know, I would read the book. I, I think um, that there's a lot of excellent stuff in here. I was really impressed with the prose. There's also the added thing that I haven't mentioned, that every once in a while, there's just a line written so squarely in Stallone's vocal cadence that it made me laugh. Like, there's just a line where he's talking about Adrian and says, she wasn't really worried, maybe just concerned. It's like I could he hear him saying that. So, yeah, it's a it's a really good time, uh, and it's a breezy, you know, hundred and fifty pages. It's not one of these books we spend a week and a half reading uh, and give like massive chunks of of our life to. So the per page joy rate on this thing is is pretty immense. It's since I was describing the plot of Rocky Four to my father last night, I guess. Uh huh. Had and he it not takes seen literally it? two seconds. No, he. I don't know. I don't know actually, but he didn't remember it, and he couldn't tell like what happens in Rocky Three versus Four, whatever you know. So I was like, "Here's what happens in Rocky Four. and it literally took me a second. Yeah. <laughs> it is the fastest paced story in the world, and it's so crisp and so punchy, and the fact that Stallone manages to get 150 pages out of that. I think is speaks to his interest and expertise and like 
craftsmanship because it'd be so easy to be like he punched him he died moving yeah. on you know <laughs> he died then he went over to russia another punch no death this time but victory yeah like the synopsis of the and like even andrew like even you giving us in our intro that like really beautifully written paragraph is more than i could give to my dad <laughs> even i was like uh the russians come the russian kill his friend Rocky goes to Russia. Rocky fight Russia. Rocky win. <laughs> like, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's one point. of the best movies in American cinema. Uh, your your prose was quite beautiful, I will say. Thank you it's so really much. Good, I, I, I started out really defensive about it. Then I switched to fishing <laughs> for compliments. Then I got them. I'm ready to pack it up. Dan, the podcast is Project Exploitation. Uh, why don't you tell us what frequency and or day of the week it comes out and why don't you plug an episode that you're particularly proud of oh okay um well we're currently between seasons uh we're planning to release uh a uh baker's dozen of episodes hopefully in the next couple months uh right now we're recording and mixing them uh right now i believe we currently have 14 episodes it's projectsploitation.com that's p-r-o-j-e-x P-L-O-I-T-A-T-I-O-N dot com. It'll be in the Oof. show notes, too, for our listeners. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, it's a, a, a deep dive into the historical and uh, political and social elements of exploitation cinema. Because uh, often films like that, uh, commonly called B-movies, tended to be made really fast and on the cheap. And because there was what I would often call sort of a benevolent lack of oversight, often the people involved would, either out of boredom or out of some sort of sense of... um, uh, Sorry, you can cut this silence here. Sorry about that. Uh, sense of uh, transgressive mood or out of some uh, higher artistic purpose or because of their held beliefs, they are often able to sneak things in that were very reflective of events that were going on right then. Often these movies would be done in such a way that they would announce, you know, a, a studio would announce the movie. Uh, they would tell the screenwriter, you've got to get it done in this time. It's got to have this much sex and it's got to have this much violence. It's got to be under this many pages. Oh, and by the way, we've already made the poster with the release date. So you, you have to hustle. So then, uh, they go and they get, tell the filmmakers with the script, they go, here's the amount of money you've got. You've got 14 days and one day to edit or something like that. Sometimes two or three days. But within that, they were often able to speak to things that were happening in, at the time, uh, that bigger studio films couldn't either because they were trying to play it a little safer with their audiences or because big productions often take a couple years. Uh, one great example of that is the movie, the big heat versus, uh, from here to eternity, uh, Columbia pictures, their big movie was, was, uh, from here to eternity. That was a big Cadillac thing. And the big heat, that was just meh crap, you know? They literally bought the rights to the book in January, and by April they had filmed it, and by, I want to say, July it was out. So if you want to listen to a particular episode, I would say our episode on The Big Heat is really fascinating, because it tells you a lot about ways that filmmakers can kind of subtly um, 
program interesting auteur messages or social commentary into it. And again, sometimes it's just because they're bored. They've made two or three movies this year already, and they're and the plots are so similar they want to distinguish themselves. So I would check out our episode on the big heat. It's crazy how much of that applies to the art of novelization. This could be called this podcast could be called the benevolent lack of oversight. <laughs> oh, feel free to use it. Uh, but honestly, um, it's true. This is, I think, one of the reasons why I really enjoy Authorized is uh, because it's it, it does cover a lot of the same territory where you find uh, levels of really quirky and eccentric authorship within these areas where you would think it would have a ton of oversight. But it's not always. Sometimes you see really distinctive, very auteurist uh uh, artistic styles getting in there. So anyway, and all too often, uh, very fucked up beliefs that just made it into the book. Mm-hmm. Dan, thank you so much for coming on Authorized. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, I was it was a pleasure, absolute pleasure. I, I had a great time. And another person that I want to thank is any archetypal audience member. I hope there's more than one of you. To our audience, our listeners, to anyone hearing this. <laughs> Please, uh, uh, what do what do I want you to do? So, like, rate, rate review, like, subscribe, uh, tell okay, your like friends. Our, like, we're not on YouTube. I don't think like is one of them. I don't rate know. Us, review us. Please do add a review on whatever your podcast <laughs> platform is. Please do subscribe. We also have a Patreon, authorized.com slash, I always do that, patreon.com slash authorized. I want us to own patreon but we're not there yet (laughs) (laughs) and as usual i'm going to close out the episode by reading a uh excerpt from a classic piece of literature please do let me know if you can recognize what this is from tweet at authorized pod with your answer hey rocky the vhs of the apollo creed ivan drago fight just came in do you want to watch it why no, Adrian? That would cause me misery. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Ooh, wow. Good one. So I think we all walked away from this book with the same question. And that was, of course, what was in that English program Rocky was doing? (laughs) And, of course, as a uh, professional tutor, if you're in the Chicago area and your uh, child needs to take the high school admissions test, do hit me up. Um, I was capable of recreating it from the evidence. So Rocky Balboa's English program... Are you mentally irregular? Uh, So the rules here are, no question is directed at a single person. Just buzz in with your first name, and uh, you can take a guess. Up first. What kind of phrase is this? Michelle, the stewardess for the first class section, 
fastened her seatbelt and glanced out the window. Uh, and uh, is this phrase a positive, a determiner, a quantifier, or a possessive? Yes, and the, the section we're focusing on here is the stewardess for the first class section. Oh, yes. Is it a, Andrew. a positive, determiner, quantifier? Andrew Marco. Is it a quantifier? It is not a quantifier. I will allow one more guess from someone. Hannah? Hannah Blackman. Is it possessive? It is not possessive. Uh, yeah. All right, we've narrowed it down too much. This is an appositive phrase. Oh, Wow. And a positive okay. phrase in grammar. It's a type of noun phrase that renames the thing that came before it. Michelle, the stewardess for the first class section, fastened her seatbelt. So you would also use this if you were like, my sister, Sarah, that sort of thing. Up next, no points on the board. A little intro here. This book is absolutely drunk on the M dash. It's yeah, obsessed with it? the M dash. I think drunk is the right way to put this because is not using it right a lot of the time. <laughs> but sometimes it is. So please tell me, and there can only be one answer this time. Is this a proper use of the M dash? Like if you lose M dash, close quote, Holmes interjected. The context of this is some is the 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 Secret Service, whoever it is, is like we're really worried about what might happen. And the other guy goes, like if you lose M dash, as if he was interrupted or something. And that's, Is he interrupted, though? That's wrong? Is that wrong? That's the question. I think uh, it's right. I feel like the, if he's interjecting, the M dash would have to be at the beginning or something. I don't know. I, I would say that it's not correctly used. No it's one has correct. buzzed in. Uh, Hannah. Andrew. I, I heard Hannah right. first, unfortunately. I think it's right. And if it's wrong, then I don't want to be right. <laughs> I think it's wrong. Andrew thinks it's wrong. Okay, I'm going to give a point to Marco here. This is a wrong use of the M dash. We'll educate a little bit more on the M dash right now. <laughs> uh, is, would anyone like to describe what we're looking at before the text comes We're up? looking at an image of Judy Dench in Quantum of Solace or Skyfall, one of those Bond movies, and Dash from The Incredibles. Mm-hmm. Yes. M and Dash Ooh, hanging out. Dash. Probably in heaven. Are they alive? Who knows? Okay, which passage from this book uses the M dash correctly? Quote, the controversy is only going to grow. The national fervor is only going to grow. And if something very unfortunate were to happen, M dash, close quote. This is from page 121. Uh, Dan, would you read the next passage, please? Sure. We believe that this sort of contest, M-dash, you know, the typical us against them, M-dash, can only cause the two countries to move further apart. By the way, every example so far, including the last slide, from page 121. <laughs> this is the page that made me go, what on earth is going on with the punctuation? This is the G-men, right. right? This is the G-men. <laughs> Hannah Blackman, would you read this third and final passage, please? Quote, he's got to train what's in here. Close quote, M dash. Duke thumped his heart with a mitten hand. M dash, quote, to not care. Close quote, period, which I do think is wrong. Close quote, period. I've been told that's not what you're supposed to do. Sure, but that's not what we are concerned with. I and know. It might be a transpositional error on my part. <laughs> 
Can I buzz in Andrew Marco? Yes. I think the second one, which is colored yellow, is the correct usage. You are correct. So the M dash, one of its several uses, is that it can essentially be substituted as parentheses in a sentence. So the first one gets disqualified for the same reason that the one on the last slide was out, which is that you wouldn't use it just for someone being interrupted. You could maybe use a dash. What would you use if if you wanted to denote that? I, so this is my belief. I, I have to admit that I'm out on a limb on this one. I know it's wrong, and I think you would just use a normal dash. Like a hyphen? And, yeah, like a hyphen. That's too little. Yeah, I'm ready to have a fight about transformational English here and the forward motion <clears throat> of our vernacular. Because I think the M dash to denote an interruption is valid. And I see it, so- and I like it, and it makes sense. <laughs> Where a hyphen is too small and an n dash is just insane. Because there's computers don't really know how to make n dashes anymore. So here's the thing. I'm not going to dwell too much on this because we already have. But one <laughs> of the great... Look, unfortunately, opinion factors a little bit into, like, grammatical execution. And in my opinion, one of the great shames of the English language is that, like, the dictionary is a descriptive tool. I think that in order to maintain order throughout time, it needs to be a prescriptive tool. And yes, it's true that every one of these uses is something that we see pop up elsewhere, but technically, the second one is right. Marco with a clear lead, 2-0 on his very frustrated opponents. I would also like to say I think this is at a higher level than what Rocky is doing in the book. Okay, (laughs) up next... What type of phrase is this? Quote, Apollo lunged forward, unleashing a Sunday punch that began at his shoelaces. Close quote. The phrase in question is Sunday punch. Fantastic. And our options, of course, are synecdoche, toponym, idiom, and euphemism. Uh, Dan here, I would like to think it's an idiom. Dan, you would be correct to think so. Put me up on that Cadillac board. All right. Absolutely. Two These to all one. just sound like A24 movies. <laughs> toponym? What is a toponym? Please elaborate. A, a, a toponym is like when you're um, using, it's basically like a synecdoche, but for geography. So it's when you're like, oh, we're going to take this all the way to Washington. When you mean like to the United States government. Ah. Okay. So, um, just for the listener, not for me, for sure. Um, <laughs> what is a synecdoche exactly? Oh, great. So that's when you use a part of something to represent a whole. So it's like, hey, nice wheels. Mm. And it's I also, knew that, uh, of course. It's but... also Charlie Kaufman's film, of course. So. Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> well, he's using the warehouse to represent all of human experience. Exactly. So it works. Fantastic. Up next... Maybe the last one? No, there's two more. Up next. Oh, it's idiom. Comes in big red letters. Up next. Good at tutoring, not great at PowerPoint. My tutoring is all PowerPoints, too. Uh, What narrative device is this? A waitress walked by with a tray full of beers. Polly didn't even notice her. Our options. Foreshadowing. Dramatic irony. Situational irony. Imagery. Andrew Marco. Andrew Marco. 
I'm going to say situational irony. Andrew Marco, you would not be correct. That's one way of looking at it. Uh, Dan, uh, I would say then perhaps dramatic irony. This, of course, is dramatic irony. We know about the beers. He doesn't. Look, I see where you where, where everyone's coming from with their situa- situational irony pause. There just needs to be, like, a little more oomph on it for it to be situational irony. He needs to, like, really want a beer but not see them or something. Well, Andrew, to be fair, you didn't give me the sentence before, the sentence after. It could have been there. The sentence before was he needed a beer so damn bad. <laughs> also, isn't it, 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 within the actual context of this, it's not just that he wants a beer, it's that he wants to look at a waitress... And he can do neither due to his unfortunate gambling problem. That feels situationally ironic. Are you suggesting that Polly is horny in this novel? (laughs) I am. I am. Unfortunately, I am. Hannah, I think there's irony in his situation, but this sentence (laughs) is about beer going by him that he doesn't know about. (laughs) Okay. Up next, our final question. Andrew leading three to one to zero. No one can come back and the ranks can barely change. Oh, I have it two to two. Huh? I've been keeping score as well, and I have it two for Dan and two for Andrew. Yeah, I, uh, I thought I was the one who did the dramatic irony. Yeah. Be. Apparently that happened. It's two to two. I'm so going to knock you out in the final round, Dan. All right. We've all been on the edge of our seat Game about face. this tiebreaker. <sighs> No more of this friendly table talk. All right, our final question to settle it all. What type of phrase is this? Hey, battery brain, you want a nice, happy relationship? Then shut up and come on in. Uh, Battery brain being the phrase in question. And is it sexual harassment? (laughs) The invention of a new epithet? Hate speech that denies personhood? (laughs) Or... The premise of every single dystopian movie from 2011 to present. Andrew Marco. Andrew Marco. It's all of them. It's all of the dang <laughs> above. Nice. Andrew Marco stealing the game at the very last second. You're a worthy <laughs> adversary, sir. 